Hebrews 2020, we see Jesus increment <laughs> to 10. And this is part four of a series within a series having to do with on the level of our own time from a little phrase in Hebrews 7.19 called Cretonos Elpidos, better hope, a better hope. And we're entitling this series within a series of Hebrews on the level of our own time, a better hope for generations to come. And I'm going to ask a question at the beginning, but first we'll pray. Father, open our eyes to behold wonderful things out of the word of truth and help us to see the sum of our hopes in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Question, and I'm quoting directly Jesus himself. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Curious question, piercing kind of question, convicting kind of question, asked by Jesus, the Son of Man, in Luke 18, 8b. Now, in the context, faith is given a certain definition, but I want to consider the question in a more general sense. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Now, the answer to this question can be yes. If indeed this generation of the church, which is Christ's body, passes along the faith that was once delivered to the saints once for all regarding our common salvation. Now, Jude 1.3 talks about this, and Jude intended to write about the faith that was delivered once and for all to the saints regarding our common salvation. Common salvation there, I'm going to determine, means universal salvation. I'll tell you why. Once again, the answer to this question posed by Jesus can be yes, if indeed this generation of the church, which is Christ's body, passes along the faith that was delivered to the saints once and for all regarding our common koines salvation, soteria, Jude 1.3, and passed to us as it's handed off in every generation like a deposit is passed along to the emerging and future generations. Will we pass it along. It can be argued very forcefully and with copious evidence that the faith that was delivered to the saints once and for all, again I'm referring to Jude, the third verse, is not only the faith of our common salvation, as if salvation is the hope only of the saints, but for all humankind and even all of creation. Our common salvation, you'll see this in print, koines hemon soterias. In that case, the word common does not carry the sense of vulgar or profane or def defiled, which in some cases the word koine or koines does carry. 
but rather that of which of that which is common to all in a general sense. So the the faith that he's talking about delivered to the saints is about our common or something common to all humanity, salvation. We can't say once again that this is salvation that is only common to all the saints and not to all of humanity because in Titus 2.11 the grace of God which has appeared in Jesus Christ is salvation for all. Moreover, as 1 Timothy 4.10 says, God is the savior of all human beings, especially those who believe, meaning especially the saints. Jude 1.3 combines the ideas of a common salvation with the faith that has once and for all been passed to the saints. The saints are therefore caretakers of this message of common or of universal salvation universal human salvation that's good news that's a better hope than generally is being presented by the evangelical church especially the one in the West from the very time of the writing of the New Testament the we'll call it deposit of this hope and faith was placed in the church and especially with its pastor teachers and evangelists who are better known as good news reporters in 1 Timothy 6.20, 2 Timothy 1.12, 1.14 it was called that which was committed to the saints to be kept safe and undiminished it was called the pattern of sound words in 2 Timothy 1.13 it was to guard against oppositions of so-called knowledge or science, so-called science or knowledge or Gnosticism in 1 Timothy 6.20. To be guard, guarded against false and corrupt doctrines which toss spiritually immature persons around like waves in a typhoon, Ephesians 4.14, making them seasick in the nautical image and thus diminishing their hope. What has happened to this deposit in much of, again, and I use this qualified term, the church, has been its diminution by a perversion of the message. The adversary, in other words, has majored on attacking the hope of the church. Objectively speaking, this faith once and for all delivered to the saints is a body of doctrine. I'm speaking objectively, objectively now. It's a body of doctrine which exists within the scriptures, especially in the 27 documents that constitute the New Testament. It is therefore the very, quote, substance of things hoped for, objectively speaking, Hebrews 11.1. 1. That which is hoped for is the fruits of a finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, which we've been seeing is ultimately the restoration of all things. Andrew Jukes aptly wrote this, 
that's J-U-K-E-S. Andrew Jukes wrote, it is no future work, no promised work, no work yet to be accomplished, but a finished work, which is our sure foundation. Couldn't agree more. The fruit of that finished work is a universal harvest of which the saints are merely a kind of first fruits, according to James 1.18, and not the whole harvest. As Stauffer wrote in his note, the church of God is not the end, but the beginning, the beginning of a renewal and redemption of all mankind. So the faith about a salvation that uncommonly benefits all human beings in common, notice how I did that and said that, the faith about a salvation that uncommonly benefits all human beings in common, a faith that was deposited once and for all with the saints is a faith in Jesus Christ and in his once and for all and forever self-sacrifice on the cross in which he took away the sin of the world. So the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints in the New Testament, in toto, throughout the New Testament, is Jesus Christ in his universally deifying significance and the universally reconciling, rectifying, redemptive, and unifying impact of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now the real and the true church is God's household. Quote, God's household, close quote. God's household is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. 1 Timothy 3.15 Now the truth that the church of the living God, notice that phrase living God, which is also found in Hebrews 3.12, 9.14, and 12.22, God's household, Hebrews 3.6, preserves and passes on the truth that the household of God, God's household, Hebrews 3, 6, 1 Timothy 3, 15, that truth that it preserves and passes on is the truth that is in the form of a great mystery. And that's 1 Timothy 3, 16. A mystery which is literally, literally embodied in God-made flesh, in Jesus Christ. Jesus himself is the truth, meaning reality itself in John 14, 6. The reality of who God is, the reality of who man is, the reality of all created reality, as well as uncreated. And And Christ himself is the mystery. Colossians 2, 2 says it bluntly. The mystery, that is, Christ. The mystery, i.e., Christ, the mystery of God, Christ. Jesus, who is the truth and who is the mystery, is also the hope. He's called the hope of glory in Colossians 1.26 and 27. He is the hope of the glory of God in Romans 5.2. He is the hope of the glory of God foreknowing 
calling, justifying, glorifying. Romans 8.30 Gentiles as well as Jews and all of humanity and all of the created universe of proportionate being. Jesus is the mystery of godliness in 1 Timothy 3.16. He was manifested in the flesh and justified in the spirit. 1 Timothy 3.16. And resurrected by the power of the spirit because in his justification all are justified. Romans 3.26, Romans 4.25. He was, quote, seen by angels, means seen in resurrection by angels, having been justified in his resurrection, including those angels were, who were at the empty tomb in which Jesus was formerly buried. And they, were, they saw him also at the ascension of Christ. And now all the angels of God worship him, God's firstborn, the firstborn from the dead in future worlds. This same God made manifest in the flesh, was preached among the Gentiles, believed in by the world, received up in glory. 1 Timothy 3.16 again. In a glory that is to fill all the earth, including the man of the earth, Adam, and all of his progeny. We've labored to see an apocalypse a stunning revelation of Jesus Christ in all his saving significance in Luke, Luke's gospel, and in John, in Paul's epistles, and in the book of Revelation. And we've seen him as such in all these documents as we are presently seeing Jesus in this way in Hebrews. The New Testament itself, in all of its totality, is the presentation of Jesus in his universally saving and, in fact, his deifying significance, as is all the Bible, that presentation, in all of its totality. This is the faith concerning our common salvation. Will the Son of Man find this faith on the earth when he comes? He will, if we guard this faith as a precious deposit, if we pass it on to the coming generations. The church can only pass on the faith, however, in its objective form, in written form, in writings like this one that I'm reading from right now. It is a God-given, confident faith. But we can only pass it on in its objective form. It cannot, I can't, the church can't, all the church can't create subjective faith, though. Subjective faith is God-given assurance within people. It's a God-given, confident expectation. My soul, wait thou only upon God, for my expectation is from him. That's King James of Psalm 62.5. I think the Septuagint has it in 62.6. It's the assurance of things hoped for, 
Subjectively speaking, faith is assurance of things hoped for. Only God himself can gift an individual with subjective faith. Only God himself can gift an individual with subjective faith. As objective faith is a gift from the God of all grace, so is subjective faith. Faith, by definition, is both the objective substance of things hoped for and an assurance of things hoped for, the subjective assurance of things that are hoped for. Karl Barth succinctly defined hope, saying, at bottom, hope is simply the expectation of what faith believes as that which God has promised. And so, it is both the objective proof or evidence of unseen everlasting realities and eternal verities. In case, however, of subjective faith, it is entirely God's prerogative to gift individuals with it. So ultimately, if there's faith on earth when the Son of Man comes, it's of God's doing. And if God permits, Hebrews 6.1. So there is this faith, 1 Corinthians 12.9, which is a manifestation of the spirit. There is a faith or a gift, a charisma of faith, which is a manifestation, thanerosis, of the spirit. So it's divinely evoked, elicited, created. It's of the spirit. It's a manifestation of the spirit, according to 1 Corinthians 12.7. It's given to one here and another, there in the body of Christ, just as the Spirit gives to one here and another there a gift of wisdom or a gift of knowledge, a manifestation of the Spirit given to one here and another there in the body of Christ, just as the Spirit gives other gifts. A manifestation of the Spirit is given to each person to produce what is beneficial to many even to all. 1 Corinthians 12.8 says, To one, and one is given a message of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another a message of knowledge by the same Spirit. That doesn't just mean something that you yell out in a service. If you're given a message of knowledge, that may mean that your whole life is spent on teaching that message of knowledge or a message of wisdom. A word of wisdom doesn't mean you just holler out something that's wise, a wise proverb, but it may mean that your entire vocation in life is to communicate that message of wisdom where Christ becomes our wisdom, as 1 Corinthians one thirty says. If someone is given the special gift of faith, I'm not talking here about what people call saving faith, but the special spiritual manifestation of faith, it isn't for him that is the recipient of the gift or for her the recipient of the gift. It is so that the one so gifted can be an agent of beneficence and benevolence to many, 
even to all, not only to all in Christ's body, but for everybody in the world. It's for them. God gives special gifts, special manifestations of the Spirit to each member of the body of Christ, the household of God, to benefit not just the church, but the world. Not only the saints in God's church, but all human beings everywhere. He gave gifts to benefit mankind. So we hear so often about faith and its object, faith's object. The object usually being God the Father or Jesus the God-man or the Holy Spirit or the scriptures. But is there also a faith of which God is the subject? If there is, this must be a most precious faith. Can God even be said to be the subject of faith? Meaning the one who's believing? Barth speaks about such faith. Under the subtitle, The Verdict of the Father, in volume 4.1, he asked what this can mean. A faith which of itself, without any given reason, can explain the figure of the crucified and recognize in the crucified the living Lord. That is, can God be the subject of such a faith, a faith which of itself can explain the figure of the crucified and recognize in the crucified the living Lord, crucified with a capital C. Then he asks, can God be the subject of a faith which of itself, before the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, is able to reveal and make effective the happening of the cross as a redemptive happening? Then Barth asks, is not this a concept of faith of which only God himself could really be the subject. Then he gives a succinct answer. Well, nothing is impossible with God. Now, to me, this opens up a whole new vista. And I ask this question. Don't be put off by it. Does God himself believe? Does God himself believe? Is he the subject of faith? as well as faith's proper object. The God-man, Jesus Christ, certainly believed and was the subject of faith. In the days of his flesh, he trusted wholeheartedly in his Father and said so. In Hebrews 2.13, again, I will trust in him, Jesus said, echoing Isaiah 8.17 and 18. Jesus is both the object and the subject of faith. 
Again, Jesus is the proper object of faith, even as God the Father is the proper object of faith. Jesus himself said, and you believe in God, you believe in God, believe also in me. Jesus, the object of faith, is also the subject of faith. And, of course, he is the subject of faithfulness, for his faithful obedience resulted in the justification of all humankind. In Jesus, it can be truly said that God was also the subject of faith because Jesus is God, and Jesus believes, and Jesus trusts in his Father. So does God the Father believe? And if so, is there such a faith as can be called God's faith? Well, let's ask this question. Does God disbelieve his own word? Or does he believe his word? He doesn't have to believe it to verify it, but his verified word is certainly believed by him. The answer is obvious and it is affirmative. God believes his own word and his own promises. (laughs) When God views the crucified slave on the cross, named Jesus of Nazareth, he believes that man to be his divine son. Because he knows he's his son. He knows him to be his son. When God the Father viewed his son on the cross in time and space, he believed that his son would rise from the dead. He did not disbelieve it, even as he endured the incomprehensible grief and pain of the dying and death of his son. God not only inhabits eternity, and oh, he does, as an immobile and immutable being, and he's never that, just immobile and immutable, in the sense of being impassable, but God not only inhabits eternity, being above all pain and sorrow and pathos, God also inhabits time and space and their limitations. As such, God is the subject of an unqualified faith and of a perfectly resolute hope. Just as he is the subject of an unrestricted love. We would say, does God love? God who is love, does he love? Yes, God loves. If God is love, and he is, and if love believes all things, listen carefully, and it does, 1 Corinthians 13, 7, then God most certainly does believe. He must believe in all of his exceedingly great and precious promises, even when we don't. What a precious thing it would be then to have God's faith. Whoever abides in God abides in love. In 1 John 2, 4, 16, And in this love, we believe 
all things. In fact, in love, in God, we believe that all things will be summed up in his resurrected and glorified Son. In the same vein, God also is the subject of hope and expectation as he is the subject of love, that is, the lover. God's hope is different from creaturely hope, though. In Romans 8, 19, it says that the creation eagerly awaits. That's creaturely hope the apocalypse of the sons of God. In verse 20 it says, for the creation in its totality was subjected to futility, not willingly, but through the one who subjected it with the expectation. God subjected the creation to futility of itself. He made it form without form and void, in other words. That's a whole other kettle of fish but again in Romans 8 20 it says the creation in its totality was subjected to futility through the one who subjected it with the expectation in other words while God subjected creation to futility he did so with his own expectation does God hope does God expect yes he did he, he subjected all creation to futility in and of itself with the expectation, verse 21 of Romans 8, that the whole of creation will be liberated from its slavery to corruption. That's God's expectation. Therefore, God's hope. Therefore, the hope that we want to pass on to future generations is God's own hope, which to him isn't something of any maybe idea, but of a resolute determination and absolute certainty. And so, God subjected all creation to futility, not of the creature's willingness, but it was God's will to subject it to futility, so that with the expectation that the whole of creation will be liberated from its slavery to corruption into the glorious freedom of the children of God. So I'll ask the question again. Whose expectation was that the whole of creation will be liberated from its slavery to corruption? Is this an anthropopathism ascribing to God something that only is usually ascribed to man? Or is it more than that? Whose expectation was that the whole of creation will be liberated from its slavery to corruption? If not God's own expectation. Is not God here seen to be the subject of expectation and therefore the subject of hope? Even if there were no faith on earth, then when the Son of Man comes, there will be faith in heaven, God's own faith and God's own hope, his determined resolution to liberate all of creation into the glorious joy of the children of God, which is God's own indescribable joy, which is full of glory in 1 Peter 1.8. David's expectation was from God because it was God's own expectation. God is transcendent. Don't get me wrong. 
I'm not humanizing God purely in a way that would dishonor him because God is transcendent. And as such, of course, he sees and knows the end from the beginning. Isaiah 46.10. I may even be said, it may even be said that he inhabits the end as he inhabits the beginning. Even as Jesus said, I am the beginning and the end, the first and the last. But just as the son emptied himself of the prerogative of his essential deity and entered the limitations of time and space and the likeness of sinful flesh, so God himself, the Father, may well choose to limit his own omniscience and to believe and to hope as the divine subject of faith and of hope, just as he is most certainly the subject of love. His own love, which the Holy Spirit pours out into our very innermost being and hearts and causes to overflow. My prayer is that he will give this gift of hope engendering faith to many in the coming generations. That's an official prayer uttered just now in Jesus' name. The very gift of faith is the assurance of hoped for things. When the hoped for things are the summing up of all things in Christ, the new creation of all things, the deification of all humanity by their creaturely participation in the divine nature, and a universe resplendent with God's glory and replete with life, then this is the better hope that will overflow in the coming generations. May the Son of Man find, indeed find, this kind of faith on earth when he comes when he makes his second appearance as our great archpriest, when he comes with the universal salvation and fulfills the one hope that is common to all of creation. When both objective and subjective faith are conflated, we have the situation described by the patristic theologian John Chrysostom, who died in 407 A.D., In his homily, 21.2, he wrote, Faith gives reality to objects of hope, which seem to be unreal, or rather does not give them reality, but is their very essence. The offering of a better hope to the emerging generation, then, and the generations to come, is the vital task of the household of faith if it is to be called in truth and indeed the house of God and the house of the risen Son. For we show ourselves to be God's house by having and holding this hope and therefore to be holding this hope out to the world. presenting it to them, announcing it to them.
Remember Hebrews 3.6. But Christ as a son over his, meaning God's house, whose house we show ourselves to be if only we hold fast to the boldness and the boast of our hope. You want to call yourself the house of God? Well, you are that. Indeed, and in truth, and in practice, if you're holding on to this better hope that we have now to offer the coming generations. The very vocation and mission of the church, if it is truly the church, the house of God, is to offer hope to the hopeless, and a better hope to those with only the imaginary hopes of magical thinking, like that of utopianism or an incomplete hope like that of soteriological dualism, or the mindless entertainment of TikTok rather than Bible doctrine. I'm speaking as one of the waning generation of Americans, fading of fading generations. Baby boomers were called. The large crop of kids that grew up in the decades immediately following World War II. I'm speaking for that generation and I'm speaking of our kids and grandkids, nieces and nephews and the generations to follow, their kids and grandkids, nieces and nephews. Maybe if these spoken and written messages survive my passing, I'll be speaking to those generations. Being dead, still speaking, like Abel, who knows. In any case, may the church preserve and proclaim the great mystery and the great intention of God to sum up all things in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, in Jesus, his eternally begotten Son, and God's Christ, the elect one, the chosen, in whom all are chosen. In other words, may the church of the future preach Christ Jesus, the Lord, in connection with this great hope. Now, I've made references to the Western church, distinguishing it from what is called the Eastern church. Now, without belaboring the history of the development of the Christian church and its so-called split like the globe of the earth into western and eastern hemispheres, I want to clarify what I mean in closing by the western and the eastern church, not choosing in any way to divide Christ, for Christ is not divided. Neither is the church, which is aptly called Christ's body. However, in a way not too dissimilar from the acknowledgement of seven churches in Revelation, we can speak in general terms of a church of the West and a church of the East. For our purposes in the matter of the offering of hope to the world, the Eastern Church comes out more like the church at Philadelphia in Turkey in the first century and the church in the West more like the church at Sardis, at least recently. There are always exceptions. 
even as there were in Sardis a few names who did not soil their garments and who will walk with the Son of Man in dress whites. Revelation 3, 4. Among these is Pseudo-Dionysius, whom I have quoted very often and am compelled to do so. Also known as Dionysius the Areopagite, who is actually a Western theologian from the 5th of the 6th century. He's one of those who still held out that hope. We've quoted this sublime piece of writing from his work called The Divine Names on many occasions, and I want to close with that quote for your contemplation. He writes, Let us move on to the name Good, which the sacred writers have preeminently set apart for the supra-divine God from all other names. They call the divine subsistence itself goodness. This essential good, by the very fact of its existence, extends goodness into all things. Father, grant that this hope survives to the coming generations, this better hope than we have offered to it before in many cases. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.